Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to the DOGS program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, D-O-G-S. We're here every Saturday at noon to promote and defend our public school system. We've been on 3CR since 1987, have been fighting for a free secular gold standard education for every Australian child since state aid began in the 1960s. And we will continue to fight until there is equity of opportunity for all children in Australia. You can find out more about us at our website. That's www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Now, you might notice that Jean is not with us today, and ergo her world-famous press release will have to wait another week to be heard. We wish both Jean and Robert speedy recoveries. Until then, this is Dale presenting this week's program, and I'll try my hardest to keep broadcasting our struggle, as now more than ever, corruption and cronyism threaten to eviscerate our public school system. Today, we'll be listening to a discussion on school funding inequity the impact on teachers and students, by a panel of public school advocates on the eve of World Teachers' Day last week on the 29th of October. The full video of the web seminar is available on the AEU Facebook page and a link to the seminar will be included in the podcast details of this program. The discussion is described thus. Public schools missed out in the federal budget with no money for the $19 billion shortfall over the next four years. Experts discuss the inequality in Australia's public education funding system and what it means for teachers, parents and students. The discussion was chaired by AEU President Corinna Haythorpe. Speakers include public school advocate Jane Caro, senior political economist Adam Roris, presenting his latest research, teacher Alice Lung, and Principal Lisa Branch. First speaker, Adam Roris, will discuss his report on Australian schooling, the price of failure and reward for success. You can find this report at the Analysis and Policy Observatory website. That's the apo.org.au. And a PDF of the report is available at the AEU website. Again, a link to the report will be provided in the podcast details of this program. Now, on to the discussion. I want to start today by actually reminding ourselves of the first principles of funding. We talk about school funding in Australia, it's often, it can get very confusing. It's been going on, the, the struggle for fair funding for schools has been going on for such a long time. Sometimes it's, it's easy to actually forget what, what the framework was meant to be and what the, what the actual guideposts were. When the whole Gonski uh, agenda came on, and even before that, when when uh, state and territory ministers with the Commonwealth were discussing what fair funding would look like, the the first principle was that we had to look at a minimum funding. That you know to go aspirational was just absolutely going to be too difficult. Uh, schools were too far apart, systems were too far apart, and that we had to start from what would be a minimum funding required. Uh, to, to allow schools to deliver the absolute basics. So it was never actually a, an aspirational standard. It was meant to be a minimum of funding required so that schools could actually achieve minimum learning outcomes in only two areas, actually, in literacy and numeracy. And we had to agree with that because to go further was going to be too hard and it was also going to be quite expensive. It was always about setting uh, a minimum standard that we could 
and a government would have a clear obligation and a mandate to provide. And so when we're talking about a school resourcing standard, it's not meant to be an aspirational target. It is meant to be the absolute bare minimum that schools need based on uh, an estimate of what's required for them to be able to deliver uh, 80% actually of their students uh, to, to hit those targets, literacy and numeracy. Uh, that's the, that's the, the extent of the claim of that funding. And so when we look at the failure to reach uh, school, schooling resource standards levels, we have to understand that we're actually failing to meet a very bare minimum of what's required by our schools to do their job. Before we actually look at the numbers, I also wanted to look at what I call here the load of dice. Because when we actually look at the pattern of funding uh, and its distribution across schools, and in particular between public schools and private schools, the first thing we need to understand is that the, the whole thing is actually loaded uh, against public schools. That was never intended to be that way, but there are six features which actually predetermined and actually uh, lead to the situation and the numbers which we're about to, to look at very shortly. The first one is um, that the agreements that are in place now between the state and territory governments and the Commonwealth mean that the Commonwealth itself will overfund private schools in, t- in regard to their uh, schooling resource standard uh, contribution of 20%. They'll continue to overfund them until 2029. That is, in other words, that's hard, that's hard coded. Into the agreements. That's that's not a that's not a rogue result. That's not an aberration. That's not something that it, it's actually hard coded. It's, that's that's the agreement. That's in there. It's 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 an intended policy outcome. And at the same time, the second thing that's hard coded in there is that the Commonwealth will underfund public schools uh, at li- until 2023, and that is in terms of its 20% commitment. Nothing nothing about actually you know the total quantum and hitting a the SRS, just simply hitting the target that the Commonwealth set for itself at 20% uh, as an arbitrary amount that it was going to hit as its contribution towards the school resourcing standard of funding which all schools need. The third act, the third feature of, of the whole hard coding and all this is that state and territories overfund uh, private schools in terms of their commitments to them, but do not reach their 75% targets for public schools until 2023. Um, and so, and that's at best at 2023. They're lagging. The fourth feature, it's a new one, and I'll discuss it in more detail later, is that they've imposed, I call this a capital depreciation tax. They've applied a notional uh, accounting trick uh, on, it's, a, and I, it's my term, because it, 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 it is a trick. And they've applied it to public schools, but they don't, but they don't apply it to private schools. And I'll explain later what that trick is and how it essentially deprives schools, public schools, of 4% uh, of funding from their recurrent school funding. Uh, their, in other words, the money they need um, year in, year out in order to deliver the lessons and the program to their, to their students. The fifth aspect is that the agreement between the Commonwealth and the, and the states and, and territories leaves uh, public schools uh, short between 5 and 20% from minimum required uh, to deliver SES funding. The sole exception to this is the ACT. And I should point out, the ACT is also the sole exception on the, on the capital depreciation tax. All the other states uh, fail in this regard. And the, the, the final point is that 
by agreement between the Commonwealth and the State Territory Governments, all private school systems, uh, except for Northern Territory, uh, will be funded more than their specified SRS funding level by 2022. They'll, they'll be above that by 2022, all of them, except the Northern Territory. That is, that is the, uh, the result of those agreements that have been struck between the Commonwealth and all state territory governments, irrespective of their political talent. So, the first key finding, and here, by the way, I should point out, this is a, a presentation, presentation we're making here. It's based on a report, which I think you can find on the AU website. And the first key finding of my report was that, based on the, the, the Commonwealth and State and Territory's own accounting uh, principles, public schools across Australia during that period 2020 to 2023 will be $19 billion short on the funding they need, the minimum funding they need, as defined by the School and Resource Standards. New South Wales, uh, Victoria and Queensland, uh, each of those have cumulative shortfalls in that period uh, that are uh, more than $5 billion each for their public school system. I mean, these are, you know, quite incredible figures. Very quickly, uh, what I show in the report is how those numbers break down across states and territories for uh, public schools. You see on the top right-hand corner an accumulative total. That's the national uh, shortfall in funding for all public school systems across the country. Uh, and you can see there the state breakdowns for those that want to look for their individual state and see how they're faring. You'll see that ACT is the only one that actually... Uh, uh, stands above the school resourcing standard, and they are, by 2023, down to uh, level pegging. In other words, they're not collecting more than their school resourcing standard. Um, all the others, year in, year out, uh, are falling and falling massively short of the minimum funding required by the school resourcing standard. While this is going on, the private schools are doing uh, are receiving the exact opposite treatment. Uh, private schools uh, during that period uh, are overfunded by approximately a billion dollars. Public schools are underfunded by 19. The private school sectors, with the sole exception of the Northern Territory, attain and exceed their SRS funding levels by 2022 uh, at the latest. And this this table here uh, breaks gives you a breakdown of, of, of the distribution of uh, that largesse. Uh, and it's it's quite significant, and obviously some states are, are reaping uh, more than others, and over uh, the whole time others are not. But the cumulative total nationally is just shy of a billion dollars over that time period. If we want to understand this on a per student basis, and, and you know economists do do like to standardise these figures so we can have a better sense of what's going on between states uh, and in terms of the impact within a classroom. New South Wales is the highest shortfall, uh, about $816 per student by 2023, and all all jurisdictions uh, underfund their public systems by by more than $1,000 per student by 2022 and 2023. The greatest uh, underfunding per student is is in the Northern Territory, more than $6,000, and Queensland also comes at more than $2,000 per student. Public schools, I mean, there's all sorts of talk of a gold standard by, by the Commonwealth Government at the moment. Well, gold standard, we can't even get a Gonski here. I mean, really, it's, it's quite, it's, it's beyond disappointing. 
All public school systems, with the exception of ACT, are stuck at 95% or below that mandated SRS level funding by 2023, and all private school systems, with the exception of Northern Territory, are publicly funded above SRS levels by 2022. And, and that's, that's just the hard reality of it. What was particularly new when I did this analysis this year was um, the impact of, of this kind of really sort of absolutely not a bright idea and not a bright spark. But uh, what's happened is, is this trick where basically uh, New South Wales first in, in an agreement with the Commonwealth in order to get their agenda up uh, in 2018, stitched together a deal which has since been replicated by all other states except for uh, the ACT, where the state and territory government, territory governments are able to include as part of what we call their recurrent spending, in other words, the spending that goes to schools for their teachers, for their books, for the materials, uh, for the utilities, for the toilet paper, the stuff you use day in and out. They were able to insert as part of that a notional, it's entirely notional, 4% depreciation on their uh, capital depreciation stock. They could take a capital depreciation figure and as long, and up to the value of 4%, of the schooling resource standard, they could claim that as part of their contribution towards uh, recurrent expenditure. It's both is wrong, it's inconsistent, and to really sort of uh, put the cherry on top, they only applied it to, to public schools. They had they had no inclination at all uh, to go with private schools because they knew what would have happened there. There's no way they would have copped it, so they just palmed it off onto the, onto the public schools. Uh, and the, the impact of that. Is, uh, is quite horrendous. You can see here, uh, over that period, 2020 to 2023, the national shortfall uh, that will accrue to public schools will be just shy of $8 billion through this accounting trick. Uh, that's how much that they, they're depriving, that's the amount of funds they're depriving uh, public schools from receiving in what should be cold cash to actually do things instead of a trick of sliding over notional money that does not exist, is entirely accrual-based and does not actually reflect anything that reaches any school, any classroom, any playground. Um, if, we take that, if we take that accounting trick in, in, into consideration, and I believe we absolutely should, the actual cumulative funding gap from public schools, i.e. the gap from what they need and what the public uh, that the school resourcing standard says they should be receiving to what they actually do are receiving is not $19 million, it jumps up to nearly 27, uh, n- not 19 billion, it jumps up to nationally to nearly $27 billion, uh, shortage. At the same time as public schools, remember, are, are being shortchanged this money, private schools are actually getting above and beyond what their SRS level and funding is for that same period, while public schools have been ripped off. Uh, to that value. It's a, I've been doing this for so long, I'm calling this recycled rubbish because we've been, I've been reporting this and I've been writing about this for <clears throat> close to 20 years now. Uh, close to 20 years. It's, it's that long. Uh, and the story has not gotten better. The, the Gonski changes were meant to fix this. They haven't. Uh, how do we explain it? The idea behind Gonski was that if there were objective standards, if there was a, an empirical approach, a scientific approach, the values were put out there, yeah, they would be visible to the public, they'd be visible to school systems, 
uh, they'd be visible to governments. Uh, there would be no choice but to actually fund appropriately, fund consistently and fund adequately. In fact, uh, things have in some ways gotten worse. I'll leave it to others perhaps to go into why exactly that's happened. I'm trained as a political economist and part of that training always tells us when we, when we look at inequity, when we look at imbalances, we look for power. And, and the only way you understand these imbalances if you if you come to terms with uh, what what are the interests that are at play and how how is power interacting in this uh, in this political economy of schooling? Very simply, the private schools have got very strong champions who go out rent seeking. In other words, they go out to get as much dollar as they can for their schools. The the administrators uh, of public schools, uh, the ministers for education, they come under the thumb of state treasurers, and they are not champions. Uh, institutionally, they are not the same kind of champions for their schools uh, that the private that the private school administrators uh, and custodians are. The public school champions are compromised by their treasurers because they they are constantly trying to save money, save government money. They're trying to save the government expenditure going into those schools. The private schools don't. They're hunting every single dollar and they fight as people on this panel know very well, very, very hard and, uh, and and over a long period of time. I think it's important that we think of ways to to, to find a way out uh, of the situation. Uh, I think it, it's a longer conversation, but I think it's very urgent and I think we need to start considering that. You're listening to The Dogs on 3CR. We'll have a quick break and then we'll come back with some more discussion. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, in the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago, this year. And we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. And it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally we might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is. And we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. To renew your subscription, make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Welcome back to the Dogs Program, the Defence of Government Schools. You're listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial, 3cr.org.au or 3CR Digital in Melbourne. We've just heard from Adam Roris, a senior political economist, talking about the inequity in funding of 
Australia's public schools. Next up, we'll be listening to public school advocate Jane Caro. Jane, your role, you've been a very strong advocate for um, public education and as a social commentator. Um, would you share with us uh, your views about what um, inequality between school systems actually means for Australia? Well, it's tragic because we're basically cutting ourselves off at the knees as a nation because um, we're losing so much talent. We're wasting so much talent. And you can see the results simply looking at our political system and our political masters right now because virtually all of them uh, went to these uh, overfunded private schools and they've been overfunded for a very long time. And they're overfunded with public money and they're overfunded with private money. Um, frankly, if they get much more money, some of these schools are going to have to start painting their buildings with gold leaf because they just won't know what else to do. They'll, they'll be shiny. They'll really be gorgeous, um, if tasteless. However, well, there's that library at Scots, isn't there? That's pretty. That looks like a Scottish castle. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's stupidity quite apart from anything else because we're not educating our future as equitably or as well as our competitors in the world. So just from that position. And also what we end up with is rule by mates. And I think a lot of the stuff we're seeing at the moment, the cronyism, the uh, – I don't know if everyone is aware of the $3 million from Round Bridge bad, valued land at Badgerys Creek and the $30 million that it was sold for. Those are the sorts of things that start to happen more when you've got people who've known each other for a very long time. I still remember when Tony Abbott's cabinet had more men in it who'd gone to Riverview, all gone to the same exclusive private school as – more of them than women. So we get this um, rule by a few, and that means we don't get the brightest, the smartest, the most creative. And we've really been very lucky for a very long time on a resources boom to be able to um, have stupidity at the top and it uh, managed to remain prosperous. But also what it means is here we are, one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world until very recently. How many years of continuous economic growth? 23 or something. And yet we, we seem to be incapable of properly funding our most disadvantaged students. And I don't know who saw the report last night on the ABC about the Smith family reporting into the inequities in our system and how postcode is destiny and we have far less social mobility in Australia than we do in uh, many other countries in the world. None of what was in the Smith Family Report would be news to any of us. But what infuriated me was that it was reported as if it was sort of hanging in the ether, as if... There was no cause for this and there was no solution. No one asked why did it happen. There was only one moment and they went to that um, absolute example of how mediocrity rises to the top in rule by mates, Dan Tian, who said, um, and I think mediocre is generous, and he said teacher quality was the problem. That's the reason for the inequalities, which is galling, ridiculous, absurd, and insulting on every level. Why does it surprise anyone in this country that if we have spent 20 years driving inequity via unequal funding and discriminatory funding that we have unequal outcomes at the end of it? It was designed to do this. Now, I was really interested in what Adam said about power. 
following power. And I've spoken a little bit about that in terms of rule of mates, you know, all the guys who are in Parliament who not only went to school together, their fathers went to school together, you know, they just all, they know each other. But it's more than that. Um, and I, maybe I get more and more radical as I get older because um, I've got less and less time to be nice and polite um, or to get see this change. I think we have to look very clearly at the fact that 98% of private schools are religious schools. And what we're really talking about is um, churches that feel they're losing their relevance very rapidly. If you think about what's happened in the last few years, um, the churches, and this is across the board, all of them, have lost control in Australia of um, birth with the uh, decriminalisation of abortion basically um, around the country. I know South Australia has still um, got some struggles, but basically it's everywhere else. Um, they've lost control of marriage with the um, uh, obviously the success of the same-sex plebiscite, and they're in danger of losing control of death with voluntary sister dying now in Victoria and WA and um, I definitely, I would say, on its way in many other states. And one of their last footholds of power is schools and education. So, and, and we have the chaplaincy program as well. The only part of uh, public education that received any extra money in the recent budget was the chaplaincy program. And I think you have to be deaf, dumb and blind not to read what that, the message that's being sent. This is all about keeping the power of the uh, churches, um, and that, and that's not, that's not really about being spiritual. That's really about the old way that power was organised, probably originally in Britain and now here, which is all about the ruling class and churches and the military and the judiciary. I, I read today on Twitter, so obviously it must be true, that only two of the current crop of Supreme Court judges went to public schools. All the rest went to private schools. So the predominance of people who have no or little experience of public education in the decision-making powers is really quite terrifying. I probably feel there's a real relationship for me in my advocacy about public education as there is with my advocacy about feminism, because I see the same parallels, that there are groups of people who are shut out of decision-making and therefore they are not able to get their case um, taken seriously. And I think that that, I, I, I long ago said that my definition of feminism changed when I realised that it was the um, centuries-old fight by half the human race to be taken seriously by the other half. Well, I think that's public education's problem too. We are not taken as seriously as private schools in this country. We're seen as, well, they're for the poor, you know, unfortunate kids. They they just have to kind of fill out in the gaps. But really the kids we care about, the special kids, the ones that are going to go on and, you know, be the um, leaders of tomorrow, and they're right, they will be, are private school students. So I'm with Adam 100% on the power thing. And they're very clever. There was a, a quote from a, um, a, a, quite a right-wing writer, actually, on a very early episode of Q&A that I've never forgotten. He wasn't talking about education funding in Australia, but he very well could have been. He said, um, it was PJ O'Rourke, and he said, um, beyond, beyond a certain point, complexity is fraud. And what he meant by that was when you make something so complex that it's very hard to simply explain how it happens, it's very easy to do 
fairly fraudulent things, and it's very hard for that to be revealed. And I think um, Adam's example of that um, uh, capital depreciation tax only levied on public schools, extremely hard to explain to the average uh, person, yet huge impact and and, and complex and difficult. And we've always done that with our schools' funding. We've made it incredibly hard to communicate the bedrock inequity in a clear fashion. That was why the original Gonski was so powerful. Mm. And the problem I now think is that a lot of Australians think it's been fixed, that Gonski was successful, that they brought it in. We, got, we, we managed to get them to change the rhetoric. When I first started as long as ago as Adam in year 2000, I got active with the SES scheme from John Howard. Um, we, the, the rhetoric around schools was parental choice. That was the, driving thing. Now that's changed. We don't hear so much about parental choice anymore. What we hear about is needs-based funding. But what we have is we were supposed to get needs-based sector blind. What we've got is sector-based needs blind. And, you know, I don't want to tell you the bleeding bloody obvious that, you know, public schools educate the vast majority, like we're talking 85, 95% of the most expensive to teach children, those with the greatest disadvantage, with far less money and resources than the private school systems have to teach the, the most inexpensive, by and large, children um, to teach in Australia. It is bizarre to me. I often wonder what's wrong with some of these very privileged children that they need to have something like thirty or forty thousand dollars a year, public and private funding dedicated to their education. What's wrong with them that they can't do it properly for the same amount as your average public school, which is what if we're talking secondary schools, eleven or twelve thousand, and I'm sure some schools it probably cost them about eight. Um, you know, when we talk about these being elite or special schools. They're actually incredibly inefficient. They, and the waste of money that is spent by parents, that is spent by governments on ever increasing luxurious resources because now we have a publicly funded, uh, publicly subsidized arms race where the very high fee schools have to offer ever more luxurious resources to compete with one another for the small number of parents who can afford to pay those kinds of fees. Um, this money is completely wasted. It gains nothing. It doesn't increase our educational results even at the top, and it does absolutely nothing for our educational results at the bottom. And that's why Australia is so falling further and further and further behind in terms of our international rankings um, in education, why um, it is, as the Smith family report has shown yet again, um, much harder for education to do what it's supposed to do, which is to help people um, be more socially mobile and have more opportunities regardless of who their parents are. And that all of that is driven by our um, basically unfair, grossly unfair funding, which leaves Australia in the proud position in the OECD of being muddling around the bottom in terms of the percentage of our funding that we give to public education, and an outlier, like slight years ahead of any other country in the whole OECD for the percentage of public money that we give to private schools. And we are told that governments, it's all debt and deficit and fiscal responsibility and we can't possibly raise the um, job 
keep her a job seeker allowance permanently because who could afford it? And yet for some unknown reason, we can give billions and billions of dollars to kids who simply don't need it. The school resource standard um, is really depressing because it is a minimum standard. And what is even more depressing is we can't even reach that. You're listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR. We'll have a quick break now and we'll be right back with more of this very important discussion. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR Community Radio. We've been listening to a discussion on the inequity of school funding in Australia. So far, we've heard from senior political economist Adam Rorris and public school advocate Jane Caro. Next up, we'll hear from those who are faced with the reality of this inequity every day. Firstly, we'll hear from state school teacher Alice Leung and then from state school principal Lisa Branch. Back to the discussion. We now go to Alice. Alice, uh, would you share with us your experiences um, as a teacher about the importance of uh, proper funding for our children? For me, um, as a teacher, proper funding will mean that the students that I teach will get the highest quality education that they deserve. So, like what Jane said, public schools do the absolute heavy lifting in terms of educating our most vulnerable students in our communities. So students from low SES, socioeconomical um, status communities, um, students who are of original and Torres Strait Islander, students from refugee backgrounds, students who are still um, um, acquiring English proficiency. All of those students, the majority of them, the data shows, are being educated in public schools. And yet, like Jane said, um, they don't receive 
anywhere near the funding um, that private schools um, students do. Um, as a teacher, I remember it became such like a start. It became so apparent, and I got so angry when um when I was still a beginning teacher in southwestern um, Sydney. Um, just due to the age of the school, um, our science labs were um, very very run down, um, and you know, I went to a professional development event at, um, at an independent school and they were able to afford like serviettes with their school logo printed on them. And I just went, you know, we can't even upgrade our lab so that our students can actually do their scientific laboratory practical work um, in a nice and updated space. And yet there is a private school who can afford to to print napkins um, with their school logo very nicely on it. Um, so, yeah, to me, that was just like my first um, exposure to just a total inequity um, of um, school funding. Um, for me as a teacher, also, I guess most recently, um, my school has seen just massive increasing enrolments, like a lot of public schools. We've got so many students that our my school now is basically demountable city. Um, we've got um, 14 demountable classrooms, um, and there's no word of how we're going to be, you know, getting any permanent buildings to accommodate our growing, growing numbers of students. And yet, the private school that is 10 minute drive down the road from our school is receiving over one, is receiving one million dollars over um, um, in federal government grants um, to replace their six demountable buildings. Um, so we've got more than double the demountable buildings that they've got, and yet we don't get anything um, to um, to be able to have a permanent classroom for our students, and yet a private school that is so close by um, has less than half of the demountable um, classrooms is getting over a million dollars um, to make sure that their students um, have a nice space, um, you know, to, to be at. And as a teacher, um, class sizes do matter. Um, I know there's a lot of people who go class sizes don't, but they absolutely do because for me as a teacher, if there's a smaller number of students, um, each student will get more one-on-one attention and they'll get more um, teacher feedback. There will be the learning will be able to be more differentiated um, to their need. And I think if we've got sufficient funding, like I said, public schools, and I know from teaching in several public schools, often in low um, socioeconomic status communities, um, that they're the ones who need a lot of help in terms of getting um, their, their academic results. And without the proper funding, it's there's a lot of them in class, and teachers do the absolute best that they can. Like, I have not met a teacher who doesn't go the extra mile for their students, but it just means that the classes are huge. Um, they, yeah, with proper funding, you'll be able to reduce the class sizes and be able to get that additional help for those students that have the greatest need. Thanks very much, Alice. Um, and we'll now ask Lisa to uh, share with us um, her thoughts uh, as a principal about what uh, proper funding would mean for uh, everyone in your school. Lisa. Thanks, Karina. Um, first of all, I just wanted to mention that um, Adam, it's out of what you said, I think that what we can do is celebrate the amazing job that government schools do do, given that we do start with um, from behind the um, starting line, I guess. Um, Jane, you know that comment from Dan Teen's infuriating and to be pointing the finger at teacher performance just 
makes my hair stand on end, really. So um, what you had to say was really relevant to our everyday work. Um, I guess in terms of what we would do with that kind of funding if we got it, it's different for every school, but in my school, um, I guess really what we notice is that the work of teachers is not only vastly more than it ever was, but it's very different to what it, it used to be. Uh, and so I think that funding needs to represent that so that we can use that funding to be responsive to the way the community is at the moment and the expectations that are put onto us. Um, you know, now a big part of our job is collecting data but doing really deep analysis of data um, and then responding to that collaboratively so that we can actually design work, not just write lesson plans, but design learning experiences for children that really targets their point of need. Now, to do that, we need um, professional learning. We need to have access, ongoing and easy access to current research so that we understand how it is that we can do our jobs better. Um, we need professional learning that is more of a package, I would say, that actually where we can look at our whole school, the needs of our whole school and how vast and varied that is and respond to that rather than just picking up bits and pieces as we can afford it or as they become available to us. Um, really, I think that that also needs to extend to being able to do that with our ES. They actually work with our most vulnerable and needy students um, and they need access to research and training, which we would be able to provide them with, with better funding. Um, on top of that, I think, you know, we're always talking about time and it's not that we want more time to do the same work, but we're expected to work collaboratively and I know as a principal it's really hard to fund our whole team to be released at the same time for collaborative practice. So some of the funding would be used to do that very work. Um, I guess also it's worth thinking, and this, as I um, mentioned to you, Karina, earlier tonight, has come under the microscope with the whole COVID situation, and that is what a hub of the community the school is, and that then highlights the, the um, you know, variety of work that we do. We not only are addressing the needs of the children in our school, but those of their family, their extended family, their current and individual situations. Um, we need people that can coordinate that work. And after all, you know, to be a high-performing school, you are expected to engage with your community in a coordinated way. Now, we need community coordinators to be able to do that work, people who are focused on pulling all of the work that we do together in a coordinated fashion. So they're the sorts of roles that I think would be able to be developed if we had the sorts of funding that you're talking about. I think we're really well-placed to be a hub for our community, but we're just not well-resourced. You're listening to The Dogs Program on 3CR. We're going to have a short break now, and then when we come back, we'll listen to a small portion of the question and answer session. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Sorry. 
You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to The Dogs Program. Now we'll just go straight into the question and answer session of our panel discussion. We've got a question here that says, why is the ACT the exception? Uh, in terms of the research that you've presented. Is that an ACT government choice, a federal government choice, or a combination? Uh, it, it's The short answer is it's an ACT government choice, uh, and they've, they've been uh, relatively uh, well-funded for quite some time, so that, that's not a new thing, but it's, it's largely driven through um, ACT policy choices. It's also a reflection on the, the uh, relatively lower concentration of um, high need students in terms of resourcing needs. So, you know, you, you, you know, you have that um, effect that comes in. Uh, but I think it also reflects government choice over a, a long period of time. I think that's why ACT stands out the way it does. Um, <clears throat> I think in terms of, uh, you know, uh, finding the champions, the, the powerful champions for, for public education. I mean, that is such, it's such an important issue and it is such a hard issue. I think when we look overseas and say, well, when, why, why are the champions there more, more effective? And I, I don't think there's a simple answer, but I think, I think what, part of what we, I think we, we, part of the answer may be, it may be, and I really don't know, but it might be in governance and the governance of, of public education. If the governance of public education brought in uh, communities um, at that school level, at that district level, so it wasn't just school focused, but you know at that sort of closer level, maybe that would create a, a more sustained engagement and a, and a more uh, an engagement that was capable of dealing with the complexity that is going to be there. So, you, so we would not be fobbed off, or the, the sector would not be fobbed off effectively in the way it was by that postponement of those Gonski targets when when Gillard agreed and pushed out the attainment of those resourcing targets for years, that just opened up the door for all these games to happen. That was the consequence of that. When we didn't get that money, well, then all these games start. And then people, as you, know, as you can see here, it's very hard to explain uh, what exactly is going on. But I can tell you, because I've dealt with, I've dealt with these uh, private sector champions for a long time now, they put a lot of time and a lot of thought to working out how to get that money out in a way that is, is, is less visible, appears fair, and yet it delivers to their bottom line in a way that doesn't uh, to the to the public schools. It, it happens over and over and over. And I think we don't – they have the administrators there. They have their champions. They're within the churches. They're within those sector organisations. No, no matter how much they complain about, oh, it's just schools and we're not sectors, they operate as a sector, make no mistake about it. The Catholics operate as a sector, independents operate as a sector, and they fight as a sector, and they fight damn hard for that. They have little fights internally between rich schools and poor schools, but when it gets down to it, they're fighting as a sector, and they've got those champions. Our, our ministers don't, for the, the reason I said before, don't, don't fight as champions for that sector. And the only way I can think that, that I mean, to be honest, uh, and I'm not saying this because it's the AE forum, the only thing that has stood in the way of public schools being eviscerated uh, by governments in this country is actually the AU. I mean, they are the political force that's actually been the last line of defence uh, for the sector. I mean, it, it's astounding. 
uh, and it's, it's that it's that resource and it's that capacity. It, it, and of course, there's been an alignment of industrial interests on the part of your members, on the part of your union with the sector, and, and that's as it should be. Uh, there's also no doubt an element of professional ethics uh, of, of your members who have that those ethics in terms of doing good uh, and doing what is required by the students that they you know have in their care uh, day in day out. But it's not enough right now. And I think we need we need to think seriously about how we get those parents and those communities. There's still those parents are still a majority. They are more than fifty percent in every state. Parents that vote, kids that vote, grandparents that have grandchildren uh, that vote. Their kids and their grandkids and the kids that are in their care, they, the majority of those go to public schools. And that that energy and that clout has got to be uh, activated. To, to be if you don't mind me jumping in, yes, that was what was um, in fact so powerful about the original Gonski campaign was that the Australian public got behind it. Mm. They totally bought it. They totally went along with it. They went, yep, this makes sense. What the then uh, people that Adam's talking about and also politicians did was they, they, they bought the rhetoric. They still use the rhetoric, but they thoroughly and completely warped and um, degraded the actual policy. And that's the problem with all grassroots movements, that you can get the public on side, but it's the sophisticated machinations of the decision makers that can completely screw that up, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, Part of the challenge has been, of course, is the government saying that there is record funding to schools, but also that increasing funding will not make a difference. So what are your views about how we respond to that? Lisa? Um, I go back to my point before that the work of schools has changed and it's very clearly documented in everything we get from the Department of Education, um, in our strategic plan, uh, in our review process. It's very clear in there what is expected of us. Um, I think we need to use those documents to actually highlight that the work is different than it used to be and that it takes a different level of dedication and professionalism by a a broader range of professionals um, to do that work to a high standard. I'd like to add to what Lisa had said in terms of how our work as teachers and as principals and as school leaders have become more complex and changed so much over time. So in New South Wales at the moment, there is a um, teaching inquiry happening where this week we've had numerous teachers give evidence um, to a panel about how their work have changed. And every single one of them have talked about exactly what Lisa have said. Their work has become so much more complex and also more of it as well. For example, the gathering, the need um, to, to collaborate, um, the constant curriculum changes. So with that change, you can only do your work sufficiently if there is proper funding behind it. So I don't in any way ever agree with that funding doesn't matter. Funding absolutely matters, and that is why the private schools fight so hard for it, to make sure that they keep a bigger share of the pie. If funding does not matter, I don't know why they're fighting so hard for it to keep um, keep that overfunding. So Funding does matter and, you know, just our work as teachers have changed and become so much more complex over time that we need that funding to get more time for teachers so that they can deliver um, the education that public school students deserve. 
Thanks. I completely agree, and I've used that line for a long time. If um, money doesn't matter, why do the private schools need so much of it? But I also think there's a simple answer to it, which is that it's because they say the same thing about we can't give universal free childcare in any way. Our childcare for funding is at record levels. Blah blah. Funding is of no use if it doesn't solve the problem. And if demonstrably we've got all these kids being left behind, then my point stands that it's actually being pissed up against a very fancy sandstone wall. It's not being used to actually gain educational benefit. I mean, it's, we're giving it to kids who don't need it, who, who aren't going to improve, who, who are already doing well and they're fine and they don't need our help. And we're starving the kids for whom it could actually make a real difference. So it's got nothing to do with the amount of funding. It's how the funding is being allocated is fundamentally flawed. That's exactly the same with the childcare model. We have the fourth most expensive childcare in the world. But parents are totally out of pocket, don't know what to do, kids can't get in, so the fucking funding isn't working. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. So the answer is there's something wrong with the way you're spending your money. It's not working. You're buying crap. Fix it. I mean, that's the obvious thing. Record funding, lousy results, there's a problem. It's not too much money, it's money poorly spent. Thanks, Jane. And Adam? Uh, look, not much I can add to, to what Jane said, basically that. And really, it, it's the, the, the fair thing about, about money and it can be spent, of course, of course it can be spent. And I, I would add this, you know, I looked at spending in schools in um, 2002, 2003, that was the... the Prior research had set up the whole methodology for Gonski. We found then, we found then in 2002, when you looked at the expenditure of public schools, so basically the slope of their funding per student was basically went the right way. In other words, schools that had uh, high-need students were actually spending more per student than schools that had fewer high-need students. In other words, the slope of the funding, we would say as economists, was efficient. You, you, you're putting more money where it's needed and less money per student uh, where, 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 where it was needed. So the slope was right. You looked at, pu- at private schools, it went the exact opposite way. Those schools that have got the, 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 the those schools that have got students from the, the, the most well-off, the most privileged backgrounds, they're the ones that get the most money. It, it's the complete wrong way. Nothing's changed uh, in, in private schools, no matter. Gonski was supposed to help address that. It was never going to fully change that because that was taken off the table. Uh, it was going to ameliorate that. Well, it's not really working. Um, and uh, the money is not actually the, the critical thing is that the money for the public schools never has never hit the levels it required to hit, and the way the rules are set up and hard coded now, they won't get there. They just will not. It's, it will not happen. And so it's got to be significant change. It's got to be profound change, and the rules have to change. Otherwise, uh, kids that need the education more than ever. With, as to return to what Jane was talking before in terms of COVID-19 and the fallout of that, the fallout of that for families, fallout of that for kids, and therefore the fallout of that into our schools is immense, and we're going to see it not just by this year, we're going to see it the year after and the year after that. And without the additional money has now become even more critical because the, the gap between families and the gap in those home learning environments is going to be bigger as those as more families go into stress and go into 
real difficult situations in terms of managing the the, the learning of their children at home. We've run out of time for this week. Uh, This has been the DOGS program on 3CR. You can find out more about us on our website, www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. We'll be back again next week, and hopefully Jean will be with us again. But until then... Thank you to the AEU for putting together such a robust and passionate discussion and all of the links to the discussion will be available when the podcast goes up. Until next week, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.